0: I'm Jessie LeBlanc.
1: I'm Kat Miller. And this is Fines and Wines. We created this podcast to share our favorite activity of discussing financial regulation while drinking wine.
0: Each episode, we dive into the lessons learned from a recent disciplinary action. So grab a glass and let's dive in. Just a couple of quick disclaimers. Nothing we say here should be considered as legal advice. We're not lawyers. However, we do have collectively more than 30 years of experience in the industry. And while our opinions are our own, let us know if anything here resonates with you. We'd love to help you out.
1: Lastly, we dive into cases to discuss the lessons learned and best practices. Nothing we say should be taken as being critical of the firm that is at the center of this case.
0: So I have a couple fun things to start with. So one of the things I'm doing is I'm looking at my phone, just kind of checking Facebook or whatever. And I keep getting ads because it's all Facebook is these days, but I keep getting ads for Zach Morris's trash. Have you ever watched that?
1: I have no idea what that is.
0: Go look it up. It's on funnyordie.com. I'm like watching these as I'm getting prepared for this podcast. And just, you know, I've got my my glass of wine. I'm sipping it, watching Zach Morris's trash. So anyway, that's that's one secondly though i do think it would be a good idea just to give a quick shout out to the book that we're reading right now since we did our first post about a book that we've been reading sort of in the sense of a book club it'd be nice to just kind of shout that out but i really want to give a shout out because i'm so excited that mary childs who is the author of the bond king gave us a shout out on linkedin this week so i was
1: yeah. So if if we couldn't be any more nerdy when it comes to financial regulation, not only do Jesse and I enjoy drinking wine and talking about it on this podcast, but we are also starting our own book club.
0: Well, and I think it's important to point out that when we say book club, we use that term very loosely. This is literally things that Kat and I will read from time to time just to amuse ourselves and then share with people that actually want to read these books as well. But The Bomb King, really good. It's about PIMCO. It's about the The environment that we have dealt with the last 20 years in the bond markets, I I, I thought it was a a really well-written, interesting read and would highly recommend
1: I find it interesting when I'm reading it. I'm reliving 2007, 2008. We were so novice in our careers during that time that everything that was happening was something new that we were learning and nobody could explain it to us. So of course, the dorks that we are, we're constantly researching, watching all the news and like... Studying every second of it so we could understand it and be able to, you know, talk to clients about what was happening at that time when we were client facing.
0: So, I think, you know, we always talk a little bit about the wine that we're drinking. And Kat and I were exchanging some messages prior to getting on this podcast to record about the wine that we're drinking today. At the risk of making miles from sideways upset, I'm drinking Merlot today and it's not a good Merlot. Like, I normally like Merlot and I think it's pretty good, but This is not good Merlot and I'm just going to have to suck it up and just keep going through the glass because you know how it is. Once you open the bottle, you can't just, I mean, who dumps out a bottle of wine? That just seems unnecessary.
1: I am drinking one of my go-to Pinots, but I have been on the quest to find a decent box wine multiple reasons. One, you know, like just financially. Um, Two, when I take my recycle out, the neighbors don't have to hear the cling, cling, cling of the recycle bed. But also thinking, you know, minimize the amount of waste I'm putting out there. All these different reasons. But the one that I'm currently drinking is is not good. And I told Jesse before the, the meeting that I couldn't drink it because I didn't want our listeners to hear me moan of sadness between each step right
0: so instead you're gonna hear me moan about my merlot and cat's gonna drink the wine that she enjoys but if anybody is listening that wants to give us any recommendations on good boxed wine we are all ears so please let us know <laughs> Okay, I think it's time to get into this disciplinary action. So one thing I think would be helpful to just state out of the gate, and we put this in our introduction, so this isn't anything new, but I really do want to stress as we're going through the list of issues that were cited in this AWC, the nothing we say here is really intended to the smirch, the firm at the center of this case. I don't want to add that extra disclaimer in there because we really do think anything is wrong. It's just literally there's there's a list, there's a long list of issues that were cited. In.
1: I would be comfortable to say as we go through this list and you're reflecting on your firm, there's a lot of firms out that, that possibly also have a long list similar to this. And this is really evidencing that FINRA is digging deeper. So I think just to kind
0: of dive right in, this case focuses on UBS and the list of infractions that they had related to trace trade reporting. So they were fined in this case for a number of different actions, specifically that they and we'll just go down the list of things that were cited in the case, but they, in particular, that they had issues reporting their transactions in a timely fashion, between 2 and 3% of their corporate debt and 22% of their securitized debt trades were reported late during a two-year period. They had issues ensuring that the no remuneration indicator was properly appended on about 24% of the firm's corporate debt trade reports. They had issues with the non-member affiliate trade reporting indicators, specifically for non-reportable internal transfers, as well as reporting trades with a broker-dealer affiliate as being a customer trade. They also had issues with corporate bond factor transactions. They also had issues with supervision for
1: all of these things that I just mentioned. So again, it's a fairly lengthy list. The rules that are covered in this particular AWC Tend to be a couple of the standards, but because this is due to TRACE reporting, and and those who aren't familiar with what TRACE stands for, it is the Trade Reporting Compliance Engine, which is used to report corporate, agency, securitized products, and treasuries to FINRA. So their rule, 6730, is the transaction reporting rules for TRACE. Also, there's the FINRA Rule 3110, which is just the supervision rule, and FINRA Rule twenty. 10, which is standards of commercial honor and principles of trade.
0: So as usual, we had two main themes that we identified in this case that we're going to dive into a little bit deeper. I think the first one that we'd like to call out, the issues that were brought up were really deep-rooted in systemic issues that the firm was fined for. I think one of the very first things that the case identifies is that the firm was actually fined in 2017 for late trade reporting violations inclusive of reporting an inaccurate time of execution but there were a variety of things that were identified in that AWC that sort of came back
1: into play in the course of this particular review so to, in 2017 the firm did get fined with a separate finding in regards to late like, trade reporting if you read through this particular finding, you'll identify that they did have an order management system update in 2018, which then fixed a lot of those late trades. Those late trades uh, were merited to corrections and manual tickets, which is very normal for most firms.
0: I think that's really important to kind of hone in on because I I feel like this is a probably fairly common in a number of the awcs that we analyze that there is some sort of a system fix that's going and whether it's an oms or just some kind of a systematic update that the firm is implementing and as a result of that the firm has whether consciously or unconsciously decided not to make changes in lieu of waiting for that system enhancement to occur i think it's worth pointing out though that finra has a low tolerance
1: for patients? Exactly. So if, when you're reading in the AWC, it does say, Fenner calls them out that this firm began to review and take steps towards addressing the issues of late reporting back in 2016. However, they didn't develop a plan until late 2017 and didn't fully implement the late reporting issues until the end of 2018. So I
0: think the other thing that would probably just be worth pointing out is the fact that the no remuneration indicator and the non-member affiliate flags for trades, the, the rules that govern that logic went into effect right around the same time that they were probably building out their requirements for this new OMS. And As a result of that, it may have just been something that I don't necessarily know would have gotten missed, but it may have gotten, again, further pushed to the back burner. This case does point out that while they had taken steps to remediate the things that were identified in the 2017 AWC, that the issues persisted with things like the non-remuneration
1: indicator and like the non-member affiliate flags. Even if it was a systemic issue in regards to the numeration indicator, I think it is important for firms to all take a step back and make sure that they do testing on this particular one. It is really valuable for price transparency. For those that don't know what numeration means, and we will know all note that that is the hardest word for any of us to say, it's just identifying trades that do not trade with a commission or include a markup or mark.
0: I think that's a really good point. One thing that I would want to add to that is that Rule 6730 specifically sets out three exceptions regarding the use of the no remuneration indicator. One, that the transaction is a list or fixed offering price transaction, that the transaction is a takedown transaction, or that the transaction is an interdealer transaction. Those are the only three exceptions. So I think a lot of firms, to your point, have just blanket applied this indicator to any trades that don't have a commission on them. That's not necessarily going to capture everything. And if it's not one of those three exceptions, arguably it needs it, it would not warrant that indicator. And I think firms do really need to take a step back and really think about why they have that applied. The other one I do want to call out in the context of this discussion is the non-member affiliate trades. Specifically that the rules, again, define very clearly what a non-member affiliate is. And more specifically, the rules really call out that firms are supposed to be evaluating who their non-member affiliates are on at least an annual basis. Supplementary material 0. 0.02 identifies this requirement specifically. And the firm was actually cited in this case for not having a review process in place to review for whether or not they had the right firms identified as non-member
1: affiliates. My last takeaway for the systemic issues on this A W S C is actually the factor bond issue. And in this case, the firms were actually reporting the incorrect principal value. And I read it as they weren't applying the factor. I can see this one being an easy system issue that people would miss also, just because of the way that calculation flows. And that would be a really good one in looking at everything to go back and apply to your testing schedule.
0: So I think now would be a good time for us to go ahead and transition to our second topic. And really, we've alluded to this throughout the course of the discussion thus far, that because of the nature of the issues that the firm was facing and the fact that they were systemic in nature, a lot of the reviews that they had that were designed to supervise for the practices that were identified in this AWC were really just not designed to be inclusive and all-encompassing.
1: Well, and I thought it was interesting is the timeframes that we're talking about. So this is between 2016 and present day. And each one of these different line items that they're being fined for were different during different time intervals.
0: So speaking of reviews that were not inclusive, you know, one of the things that I think was highlighted in this case has to do with just the fact that the firm was not reviewing supervisory reports of rejected trades and trace. Until after July of 2018. And I think that's important because if you have access to the TRAC system and you're getting into tracks on a daily basis to look at things like unmatched trade reports, late trades, different things that you are probably reviewing in the course of your normal day-to-day anyway. Looking at the rejected trades, that's definitely an expectation that the regulators have.
1: Well, and I think, again, with the AWCs being very general, at first when I read this, I was reading like it, the, the firm wasn't monitoring the reject queue at all, which rereading it, I don't think necessarily is the case. It just talks about it didn't conduct supervisory reviews. Trade reports that were rejected. And that's actually something I think a lot of firms are probably not taking into consideration when you're actually looking at your supervisory reviews. Everybody's just kind of looking at the report card, looking at the late trades, looking at the unmatched trades. And in this particular AWC, FINRA is calling out, that is not enough. And they are very detailed in just the supervisory section of the enforcement and explaining all of the mishaps and what's perceived to me to be now the expectations that firms should be doing this.
0: Right. That's a really good point. When something like this gets called out in an ADDC, especially in this level of specificity, this becomes
1: kind of the bare minimum. And it's easy enough to identify just what the patterns would be, you know, for supervisory controls, because a lot of times when you're talking supervision. You're trying to, you really need to be looking at what the trends are. Like what, what is causing the issues? I I mean, with rejects most of the time in itself, it's going to just be price out of range. But if that's the case, and we do have all of these, should you be implementing a documentation portion every time one of your ops people overrides a trade report for price?
0: Well, and who knows what that pattern could bring to light, right? So like if you start documenting it, like you might realize that there is something that is inherently wrong with a particular employee you have, maybe not doing something the way they should be. Things like price out of range. Somebody could be fat for fingering trades too frequently, and you may need to bring that to light.
1: So outside of the supervisory reviews where we're kind of just talking about actual reporting criteria, an additional one actually had to do with the trade desks that are part of the supervisory reviews. And I can see this absolutely happening with lots of firms, just depending on how you have your trade desk set up. But in this scenario, it appears that the ELNs, the equity linked and the the commodity linked notes and the convertible bonds, the desk heads were not being included in these committee meetings or in these reviews. And most likely that's probably because, again, just speculating, these trading desks are actually probably sitting in the equity capital market side of the business and not the fixed income. So everybody might want to kind of take a step back and identify if they are being included in the supervisory reviews um, are those products being reviewed, you know, in general? Yeah,
0: I, I completely agree. I could absolutely see how this would happen. The systems that you need to tr- use to trade some of these types of securities are very different than the ones that you're going to use to trade fixed income. So it's it's pretty easy to see how the individuals who may be trading those types of securities would just not get included in the. Course of the committee meetings. And we've brought this up in prior podcasts before that when you're thinking about the committee structure, or even just the makeup of your overall supervisory structure, you want to make sure that everybody who has involvement in that process has a seat at the table. The individuals who would have been responsible for executing the equity or commodity linked note trades should be included in those discussions just like anybody else. Elon's in
1: general tend to be forgotten about a lot of times when it comes to Trace, because it's not that that particular product is Trace reportable during its entire lifetime. It may be that it's only reportable during that OTC phase while it it just went new issue. It hasn't been listed on the major stock exchange yet. So I think it's easy for people just in general in firms to maybe not include it with Trace overall when you're looking at any kind of trace pieces. And that might be something, a really good exercise for all firms to kind of take back and um, review. What? How do you handle ELN trace reporting?
0: Last but not least, before we move on to our summary, Kat, I have a question for you. How do you say no remuneration? <laughs> I say
1: it as fast as possible so people can't realize <laughs> that I can't pronounce it. All right, one, two,
0: three, right. go. No, no remuneration. remuneration. <laughs>
1: No murmuration. I can't do it. (laughs) We're
0: just going to call it non ramen and move on. It's fine.
1: Non ramen.
0: So just to summarize in this case, I think one thing that we want to just call out first and foremost is the fact that this was a $675,000 fine, which is much, much larger than what we're typically seeing for for trace trade reporting violations. And I think the real crux behind that is the fact that the issues identified in this AEWC were deep-rooted and systemic. The second issue that we want to identify is just the fact that the supervisory structure that they had created to supervise for trace trade reporting appeared not to be very inclusive in the sense that it was really only looking for specified issues that were highlighted by the regulators as being problematic, as opposed to it looking broadly at all issues that may be related to trace trade reporting.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode. Bines and Wines is a part of Trade Alliance, a consulting firm for broker dealers and investment advisors with trading operations in compliance. Though these episodes are intended to be casual and a fun take on discussing regulation, our consultants are serious when it comes to helping you out.